Okay, now, we are getting over, and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times, Jada, with episode 191 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, Getting Over is back once again, and it's Thursday, so you know what that means. We are here to break down all things NXT and AEW, but this week on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, there is a little bit of a wrinkle in the form of the names Daniel Bryan, a.k.a. Bryan Danielson, and C.M. Punk. Now, we are going to get to that in our main event segment coming up momentarily. But before we do, folks, you know what this show is all about. It is indeed. So go ahead. Stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. Go back to being marks for the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, Vintage Chris Vanini, and the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Head on over to Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating, drop a review, let people know how much you love this damn show. It was a banner week here at Getting Over, the second most listeners in a single week in podcast history, second only to WrestleMania, and you are never going to beat a WrestleMania week uh, listenership for a podcast. So I am very, very pleased with how well the show has been doing recently. A large part of it is not only all of you listening uh, you know, through word of mouth, telling your friends and family, things like that. But those five-star ratings and reviews, they really do matter. I promise you, the more people that see them, the more people decide to give the show a shot and the higher we will bump up in the Apple podcast rankings. Also, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast, not only because we love interacting with you guys, getting your DM slides, reading them on the show, but we also talk live during the four major American wrestling programs. Every pay-per-view we have pre- and post-show polls, and we do a lot of other fun stuff on there as well, including occasionally breaking a little bit of news. So be sure to follow us on Twitter at GettingOverCast. So with that out of the way, we have a significant show for you today, and I don't want to waste any time. So in a rarity here on the Thursday show, we're going to open up by sliding into the main event. And the main event this week is whether... Daniel Bryan and or CM Punk is going to be headed to AEW. CM Punk, we'll start with him. He is in talks to return to the ring, to return to wrestling, according to Fightful Select, which cited sources on Wednesday indicating that AEW is his likely destination. Now, there's no further details provided regarding Punk, who has not wrestled since 2014, and we last saw him on WWE Backstage as an analyst on that FS1 show. It goes without saying that Punk would be a massive signing for AEW. And if it does go down, the debut will certainly happen at one of the Chicago shows, either the Dynamite preceding All Out or All Out itself. There's no doubt he would have plenty left in the tank coming back to wrestling after being out of action for seven years. Look what we are seeing right now with Edge, just as an example. I believe Punk is a few years younger than him. And while I don't think he alone would be enough to send AEW over WWE immediately. It is the type of signing that creates winds of change and significant momentum for a wrestling brand. Now, I said this a couple of weeks ago about Malachi Black when I called him AEW's biggest signing by a significant margin since John Moxley. The reasons for that were multiple, but mainly because WWE fans really liked him and WWE had just thrust him into the spotlight with an entire return storyline and vignettes 
despite him not having massive momentum. Black's talent and storytelling ability is superior to the Miros and the Andrades of the world, despite both of those guys being extremely talented. Punk has in-ring talent like Black, and he raises the rent from a promo standpoint like Mox. If AEW does sign him, or even if WWE stems them off by just backing up the Brinks truck and unloading millions in his lap, it is going to be a significant boost for either company. There's really no negative to him signing other than the fact that we've seen certainly at the end of his WWE tenure, this guy can change his mind on the dime, get very disillusioned with something and refuse to work. Now, the circumstances that time in WWE were very unique and the expectation is that would not happen again, but I'm sure that either company would want some assurances to that end. And again, there's really not a negative, but I'll get to a way that we should look at this potentially at the end of this uh, segment. Now, there was another report that came out from a far less reputable outlet that Daniel Bryan has signed with AEW. Like definitively, it's happened. That has not been solidly confirmed by anyone, but there does seem to be a number of others supporting that it is a significant possibility and perhaps even a likelihood. As a guy who was active in WWE just a couple of months ago, that would be an even more massive and impactful signing than Punk. Brian brings everything Punk does, plus the fact that he will have almost zero ring rust and would be entering directly from WWE after main eventing WrestleMania and having a long feud with Roman Reigns that actually continued even after WrestleMania. Just think about that. AEW signing a guy who main evented WrestleMania just four to six months earlier, depending when he debuts, if this is accurate, the reports. Now, just like with Black, this would be a total unforced error for WWE. On one hand, Brian is a unique guy, given the changing landscape. He would be taking advantage of an opportunity to work in Japan and Mexico while working for AEW, something that WWE just would not allow him to do and really could not allow because it would open the door to others requesting the same thing. Now, there were reports that WWE contacted New Japan about the idea of some type of talent sharing, but it doesn't seem like those talks went anywhere. And it would be my assumption, my expectation, that the onus to do that, the reason WWE even reached out in the first place, was Daniel Bryan. But despite WWE being in a position here where they can't match the AEW offer, which if it was only monetary, they could, but they can't offer the same types of relationships that AEW can. In addition to that, WWE chose to put Brian in that WrestleMania main event when he really didn't need to be. Now, I thought it was a better match because he was there. It was a better storyline because he was there. And the goal really should have been to put the title on him in that moment if you wanted a massive impact in front of fans. But WWE not only put him in that match, they pushed him extremely hard over the first four months of the year, knowing that his contract was expiring and presumably that he was not re-signing. Then they had to write him off TV in a fantastic match with Roman Reigns that was basically, you have to leave SmackDown, not WWE, but SmackDown, if you lose this match. Now, when you think about it, WWE fired Black just days after he returned to television. And it's for that reason that WWE would basically be putting Daniel Bryan, just like they did Malachi Black, on a silver platter for AEW because both guys would have significant momentum 
coming out of their WWE career. With Malachi Black, they reintroduced him with vignettes and, and a great moment in the main event of SmackDown where he hit the Black Mass on Big E. They release him, and then they stupidly didn't realize he didn't have a 90-day non-compete. He only had a 30-day non-compete. With Brian, now he's been out of action for a while, but Brian is a far bigger star than Black. And again, you just had him in the main event of WrestleMania and had him in a big main event match on SmackDown only a couple months ago. So these are absolutely unforced errors. Black is a way more unforced error than Brian allowing his contract to expire and, and maybe trying to negotiate and just coming to a different decision. But nevertheless, WWE chose to put him in that position knowing that he was not signed to their company long after WrestleMania. Now, my educated guess is that Brian would not even think twice about leaving WWE if it had that relationship with with New Japan. And I do think that's the primary reason he's making this move, if it does happen. He got a second lease on his career, let's not forget that. And during that time off, he saw New Japan, which has always been great from a wrestling standpoint, but skyrocket in terms of talent, work rate, popularity, and all the things that he loves about wrestling. So for him to not take this opportunity, given it something he loves so intently, it would be very difficult to understand, especially if AEW gives him a limited schedule and offers him a significant amount of money. Plus, let's not forget, Brian can always return to WWE as an active wrestler, an on-screen personality, or a producer and creative team member, which is some stuff that he you know, was doing during his last go-around. So at this point, we're just going to have to see if either of these things happen. If either does, it will be massive news. Brian more than Punk. If both happen, it is going to be monumental. And AEW will likely then have a stronger roster than WWE in an extremely short period of time. Consider Kenny Omega, John Moxley, Hangman Adam Page, Chris Jericho, Miro, Malachi Black, Andrade, Pentagon, Ray Phoenix, Pack, and Sting. Just start there, okay? And then that's not even counting Cody, Darby Allen, MJF, Jungle Boy, uh, Sammy Guevara, Orange Cassidy. I could keep going. WWE's roster, do not get me wrong, is insanely talented. But when you take all of those names I listed and add Punk and Brian to them, that is just otherworldly for a single promotion. And then when you consider that Malachi Black didn't have to be someone who left WWE. All they had to do was use him. Andrade didn't have to be someone who left WWE. All they had to do was use him. Uh, and Daniel Bryan, if they had efforted to come up with what he's really been looking for at earlier, at an earlier juncture than they did starting so late, maybe he as well never would have left. These are things that WWE, these are self-inflicted wounds. The crazy thing, though, when it comes to AEW, and as I just said, it potentially having both of these guys and an otherworldly wrestling roster, is that while it would be extremely talented, all those names I just mentioned are like one-seventh or one-sixth of the people signed to the promotion. I didn't even mention any tag teams or women. Their roster is already far bigger than WWE's right now, especially after the releases. It was bigger than WWE's roster before the releases and the recent additions. But it's even bigger now when you base it off of hours of television. Like WWE every week right now is doing seven hours of TV, not counting all the extra content. AEW is doing two hours of TV. It's adding a third with Rampage later this year, 
But dark and elevation, all of that, it's it's nothing, right? Like it's mostly dark matches and throwing people on there. It's not getting them what television deals get them. So when you look at what they're paying talent compared to how they're actually utilizing it per television hours, you know, I don't know if I don't know how the contracts are worked out. Maybe the money is a little bit less given the dates are significantly fewer. AEW obviously is planning to tour sooner than later. That's going to factor in as well. But if they're going to keep adding that talent, which, hey, you get names like CM Punk and Daniel Bryan, you have no choice but to sign them. They're going to have to make some tough decisions unless Tony Khan just wants to overpay and keep everyone else away from WWE. And if he did that, wouldn't that be ironic? considering that's what WWE had done for so long. So we will see if any or all of this comes to fruition. But given the names involved, it was absolutely worth breaking down at the top of the show, uh, providing you guys with my take on these potential signings. We'll see if they happen. We'll see if WWE has something to say about it in the form of just paying CM Punk a ton of money to ensure they don't get both of them, perhaps. But wherever CM Punk goes, if he does return, will be massive. But if Daniel Bryan goes to AEW, that is going to be significant. And I don't think it would be that long where we start maybe talking about AEW Dynamite approaching Raw in terms of weekly ratings. And if it even comes close, let alone surpasses Raw, that's the beginning of AEW not just being an organization to contend with because they already are, but being an organization that has an extremely bright future because the management of AEW is not anywhere near as shitty as the management of WCW was during its peak all those many years ago. So we will see what happens, but I did want to take you through that in the main event. So with that out of the way, let's move over to the two main shows that we talk about on this program, NXT and AEW. As always, we start with NXT since it airs a day earlier. Uh, That show began with Samoa Joe walking to the ring in casual clothes, calling out Karrion Cross. William Regal immediately ran to the ring to tell Joe that he was not brought back for this reason to fight, but Joe yelled back that the stipulation they agreed to was he could get physical when provoked. Joe said Cross needs to be put down because Regal has no control over him, including his trip to Raw on Monday. I was glad they referenced that. Regal demanded Joe end it with Cross peacefully when he arrived. Joe only promised to end it, saying someone would go to sleep before the night was out. It was an extremely hot opener, for a very simple in-ring segment between a couple of authority figures. But it did start the show on a great note, and it did keep you kind of engaged and wondering what's going to happen as it kind of played out. Regal later tried to get Joe to calm down. Joe said it's not about disrespecting Regal, but he needs to take this issue up with Cross one-on-one. Joe later tried to pull Cross out of his car when um, it pulled into the parking lot, but instead it was just some lackey inside. Joe hit the ring in the main event segment to call out Cross, who appeared on screen saying the NXT title means he can do whatever he wants and go wherever he wants. Also, I guess a reference to Raw. Then it was revealed that he laid out Regal in the parking lot. Joe ran out of the CWC, but he couldn't get to Cross in time before he drove away. Now, this wasn't the most exciting finish to the show, but it did keep the intrigue going with four more weeks now until NXT TakeOver 36, which was announced for the Sunday of SummerSlam weekend. That's pretty cool. They are clearly dragging this story out to lead to the title match. Now, my belief is that the regal attack gives him reason to go back on his word, allow Joe to compete as a wrestler in an attempt to rid the brand of Cross. So it was good enough, but it wasn't much beyond that. Now, the main event match, let's say, of the show was the Women's Championship 
Raquel Gonzalez against Xia Li. There was a video package promo from Lee in Chinese. It was actually pretty damn good where she threatened Gonzalez and promised to be the first Chinese champion in WWE. Gonzalez and Dakota Kai later said that Tian Sha doesn't scare them. Gonzalez said Zaya was basically her last challenger, which the camera then like focused on Dakota for a minute. And you could tell that she was really irked by that comment, maybe setting up Dakota Kai and Raquel Gonzalez as a feud coming up in the future. That would be pretty cool. Zaya hit an awesome basement roundhouse kick to Gonzalez's back as the champion sold a strained hamstring. Gonzalez then slammed her down and hit a senton style twisting Vader bomb that I've never seen before. I'm sure luchadors have done it, but I've never seen it in WWE, and I don't think I've ever seen a woman do it either, uh, for what was hardly a kickout. Zaya was barely able to lift her shoulder, and Zaya got immediate medical attention. She was holding her chest, and it looked like perhaps she got the wind knocked out of her because she wasn't didn't put her arms up and wasn't able to stop Gonzalez from hitting her uh, in, I don't know if it's the solar plexus or just the wind, the, the chest, the lungs, whatever the case, it seemed like she got the wind knocked out of her. I'm not a doctor, okay? Anyway, uh, the match eventually continued after two or three minutes with Gonzalez immediately hitting the Chingoa bomb for the win and the retention. Now, it's tough to know what the original booking of this was, what it looked like, or how we would have felt about the result. Gonzalez retaining was obviously the right decision, and Zaya looked good in limited action. Gonzalez's new signature move that I described earlier, it was extremely cool, and I hope she can keep using it despite the near injury here. The question now, though, is who does step up to challenge her at SummerSlam weekend? I thought it might be Tony Storm. She's debuting on SmackDown Friday. Shotzi Blackheart is off the show. Uh, maybe Ember Moon, but I think Ember Moon just like, kind of lost to Dakota Kai, so that wouldn't make sense. Maybe it ultimately is Kai, but that's going to be a story they have to tell over the next couple of weeks. We had Kushida and Bobby Fish against Diamond Mine in a tag team match. By the way, let me mention, no grade for the uh, women's match because of the finish. And it was good, though. It was going well. It was going to be above a three-star match. But, you know, it just it's tough to grade it when someone gets hurt and the finish gets called on the spot. Anyway, tag team match I mentioned. The faces attacked before the bell. Fish got the hot tag, but Roderick Strong drilled him with a backbreaker on the ring apron. Kushida got a second hot tag, but Tyler Rust hit him with a gut wrench powerbomb and a flip neckbreaker. After some counters, Kushida caught Rust in the hoverboard lock for a quick tap out. It was a nice match. It popped the crowd, but it didn't really pop me. NXT just hasn't given me any reason whatsoever to buy into Diamond Mine or believe they're a threat whatsoever. I mean, they lost this match, which was a tag team match. Why not have them win this? And then Kushida, I assume he's going to face Roderick Strong for the Cruiserweight Championship at TakeOver, but why not have the new faction, new group, get the win? It didn't make any sense. So... It was fine. Uh, Frankie Monet faced JC Jane. Mandy Rose laid across the announce table like a model during the early part of the match. That's the most action I've had all year. Monet took a hurricanrana and pump kick as Jane tried to impress Mandy. Monet then won with the glam slam and a, for lack of a better term, I promise you, like spread eagle cover where she just laid on top of JC Jane for the cover. Um, anyway, Robert Stone and Jesse Camia cheered her uh, during and after the match. This was also fine, but it wasn't really noteworthy. There was a short Bronson Reed interview with Wade Barrett. Reed said losing the North American title hurt him because it was the biggest thing he's accomplished in wrestling, and that he's looking forward to face Adam Cole because he has historically been the best in NXT. That match is happening next week. Kyle O'Reilly faced Austin Theory. O'Reilly said he heard Theory's trash talk last week and challenged him. Johnny Gargano said Theory had to grow up and go at it on his own. Theory caught O'Reilly with a rolling neckbreaker. O'Reilly came back with a double underhook Falcon Arrow into an armbar submission that was insane. 
Theory delivered a helicopter sit-down powerbomb and then a neckbreaker onto his knee for a pair of 2.8 counts. Theory removed the top of the steel steps, which O'Reilly then used to his advantage before chopping Theory down and hitting the flying knee to the back of Theory's leg prior to a knee bar submission for the win. O'Reilly refused to let go right away after the bell. This was a really good piece of business that made Theory look strong in defeat. O'Reilly is far better as this crazy Kyle character than the cool Kyle character. I went 3.5 stars in a B. If it had more time, it definitely would have been graded higher. Straight entertainment though, and these guys, we know they're both really talented. But Austin Theory, his progression over the last six months, it's extremely notable. I mean, this guy, he's still 23, 24 years old, and we know he's going to be a future WWE champion. But man, the way he works already at this young age is just extremely impressive. Uh, The way we're arguing backstage But Gargano and Candice LeRae ended up focused more on Indy Hartwell, and Theory looked really dejected and disappointed, and he said the family is falling apart. He held up his hand for Gargano to do the high five, but Johnny didn't see him, so Theory just dropped his head, took his suitcase, and walked out. Now that, to me, sure seemed like a way to write Theory off of NXT and put him back on the main roster. I really hope that's not the case because the way is incredible, and it needs all four of them. There's so much more that can be done with them as a faction. If it is a write-off, at least NXT actually got to do it, as opposed to how they've been shafted recently with WWE just taking talent in the middle of programs, not to mention the horrendous botched garbage introduction of Karrion Cross. Legato del Fantasma were set to do a mariachi madness musical that was promoted, but thank heavens it never happened because if they actually did, It could have gone in a really bad direction. So it was probably for the best. Santos Escobar said the fans didn't deserve to be blessed by music from his heritage and that his focus was on the North American title. Hit Row entered, Top Dollar dropped some pretty hot battle bars, I gotta say, and then Swerve did some of his own insulting Escobar. The groups brawled, BFAB took a guitar away from Escobar and handed it to Swerve as Escobar ducked out of the ring. Swerve eventually used it on Wild as Hit Row actually got face chants from the crowd. This was another great segment, and it's just so refreshing. I know I say this all the time. It's a little bit repetitive, but it's so refreshing how unapologetic and real Hit Row gets to be. One thing that's refreshing about them is even though Swerve is the leader, and he can spit in his own right, don't get me wrong, it's Top Dollar that's actually allowed to shine and stand out more on the mic. He gets more time to drop bars than Swerve does, even though it's Swerve's faction and even though Swerve is extremely talented in that regard as well. It sure did seem like this was a face turn for the faction, but I hope it's only circumstantial given that Legato were heels and this is the the feud that they're gonna do. Having Swerve and Escobar for that takeover would be an incredible North American championship match. We got a taste of what they can do with the Cruiserweight title. I would love to see them in a North American title match. And let's not forget, the Silver King was saying a year ago that these guys needed to be in the main card and not the cruiserweight division. And here we are, not only are they in the mid card, but they're actually fighting each other. So you know that there's no one more excited about this development than I. We had Odyssey Jones against Andre Chase in an NXT breakout tournament match. There was a botch on a tope. I think Jones just was unable to catch Chase. He missed him. And Chase almost broke his neck, but luckily they were both okay. Chase hit a flip cutter from the ring apron outside that Jones did not sell well. Jones hit a really cool sidewalk slam Uranagi, and that was his finisher, it looks like, for the win. He proved to be extremely green in this match, but 
it was obvious that his upside is far higher than Chase. Not that Chase is bad, but Odyssey Jones could really be something. So he was the right winner in the match, but I do not expect him to win the entire tournament. There was a backstage segment with MSK. They said they welcome any and all challengers. They were just about to explain what MSK means when Imperium cut into the broadcast to discuss how the tag team division is pathetic. Then the feed cut back and MSK finished their explanation without us actually learning anything. I thought it was a pretty nice little tongue-in-cheek moment, but as I say all the time, I recognize the talent of Imperium, but I find them endlessly boring, especially without Walter. And now that Walter is injured and he was already in the UK and not in the United States, I just don't really care about Imperium. That's just me being completely honest. Uh, Pete Dunne and Oni Lorcan challenged Tommaso Ciampa and Timothy Thatcher to a scrap next week. That was the extent of it, but a tag team match was set. We also had LA Knight against Drake Maverick. Cameron Grimes as the butler drove Knight up to the CWC in his Corvette, but he was trying to carry four bags out of the trunk when he kept fumbling with them, so Maverick attempted to help him. Knight got mad that he tried to help, got in his face, and a match was set. Knight forced Grimes to hold the Million Dollar Championship in the air all match, but Grimes kept forgetting and dropping it. The third time that he had to tell Grimes, Maverick kicked Knight from behind into the title and rolled him up for the win. Knight caught Maverick, he beat him down, blaming Grimes, who made the save. However, Knight reminded Grimes that he's a man of his word, he's supposed to do what he says, and he demanded that Grimes punch Maverick in the face, which Grimes eventually reluctantly did. It worked well, it was a step up from last week, but... I don't know what kind of runway this feud has, and I really just think that NXT probably needs to end it at this upcoming takeover, do one more match, so Grimes gets out and put the title on the line. I don't know exactly how the hell you book it at this point, but you ultimately have to end this, and it has to end with Grimes coming out on top. And lastly here, with NXT airing on Sci-Fi over the next two weeks due to the Olympics, they actually taped the show on Wednesday. Uh, I have absolutely no idea why they taped it. I believe they taped two episodes just because it's going to air on a different network in the exact same time slot. Maybe there's a cost savings, but that means the spoilers are out and people are potentially going to be even less likely to watch, especially if they don't like what they read. So there's some really strange decisions being made in and around NXT these days, and this is certainly one of them. So ultimately, it was a good edition of NXT. Nothing mind-blowing. Uh, The last two weeks have been, you know, good, but relatively lackluster, coming out of a couple exceptional shows that NXT had. So let's move over to AEW Dynamite Fighter Fest Night 2. We'll start with the main event. The IWGP United States Championship was on the line. John Moxley defending against Lance Archer in a Texas death match. There was a really strong video package with promos from both guys. AEW sometimes goes through entire episodes without previewing a main event. So I was glad to see this got promoted. And the stipulation of the match is that a win can only come via knockout or submission. They quickly fought into the crowd. Archer pulled the padding at ringside and Mox hit a DDT. Rick Knox blatantly handed Archer a razor to blade with. uh, And he stopped the count even outside. He was outside the ring for like 15, 20 seconds and it only needed a 10 count. But uh, sorry, he was down on one knee, I mean, for uh, 15 or 20 seconds. But Knox stopped the count. It was just weird. Anyway, uh, so he cut himself. Mox then attacked the cut with a dinner fork. Mox wrapped a chair around Archer's ankle and stopped on it. Archer pulled a trash can lid and punched it into Mox's head. So Mox then bit the cut that was on Archer's head. Mox escaped the devastating move with a low blow, and he got booed for doing that, which I thought was interesting. Archer recovered and chokeslammed the champion into the top of two chairs. He got cheers. Mox hit a huge clothesline and a death rider 
but Archer quickly got up, almost no-souling it, so Mox stabbed him with the fork more times. Mox then grabbed a couple barbed wire boards and put them atop two tables at ringside. Archer grabbed the fork, he stabbed Mox with it, then he chokeslammed him through the tables for the 10 count and the win to become the new IWGP United States champion. This was a really good match, and actually a bit less brutal than I expected despite all of the blading. There was a standoff with a Bullet Club member from New Japan that set up a match next week at the end of it. Just like I said at the end of Dynamite last week, it seems they've learned a lesson to allow the final few moments of the show to linger, especially when a face gets over, so that fans can cheer, as opposed to just cutting the scene and moving on to something else, having a stupid attack or something like that. Also, hey, look at this. After two years, Lance Archer has finally won a notable match in AEW. That is a good thing. That was a good one, yeah. It was a good one, Randy. So yeah, that was obviously great. I went with 3.5 stars and a B. I would totally accept if you're a little bit higher at 3.75, but this was well-booked, it was well-wrestled, and the idea of Mox losing a match and losing the title um, without taking a pinfall was very smart. My assumption is they want Archer to defend that title in Japan and or be part of the G1 and Mox with a new child, an infant still, doesn't want to leave his wife at home and go to Japan in September. So it all made sense. Uh, The show opened with Chris Jericho against Sean Spears in the Labor of Jericho match, the first of five. The stipulation here was that Spears could use a chair, but Jericho could not. Spears got up on Jericho early with chair shots, but he made a run and hit an impressive hurricanrana off the ropes, he being Jericho, by the way. Jericho forced Spears to tap out with the walls of Jericho, but the referee was distracted by Tully Blanchard. Sammy Guevara finally ran down to even the odds. Spears used a chair to break the submission and hit the C4, but Jericho kicked out, which is just really silly given that it was a chair shot and the guy's finisher consecutively with no break. Jericho avoided a chair-aided C4, ran Spears into a chair between the turnbuckles and hit the Judas effect for the win. MJF, of course, was incensed, and he announced that labor number two will be next week, a no disqualification match against Nick Gage. This was a well-booked match with an expected conclusion. Certainly Jericho is not going to lose these labors of Jericho before getting MJF presumably at all out. Gage is certainly going to pop a lot of independent wrestling fans as a deathmatch guy who created a lot of highlights recently, but I think AEW may have slightly overshot his impact to the general audience. I, for one, don't have an issue with him coming in for a match, but AEW's roster, we talked about it earlier, it's so massive that it's strange they do so many of these one-offs like this. Jericho later announced he would debut the Painmaker, which is his New Japan character, in AEW next week in order to step up to Gage's level. And again, personally, I know since you guys are going to ask me, I don't know much about Gage other than the highlights and clips that I've seen. Personally, not my taste. Don't really care. But I actually think they'll have a great match next week because if this guy is getting this huge opportunity in AEW uh, and Jericho's involved, then chances are that's going to be really good because Jericho is Jericho. Miro cut another short Redeemer promo. It's a little strange that the TNT title was being defended weekly and is now off TV for weeks at a time, despite it being on someone the fans badly want to see wrestle. No real criticism about that. It's just an odd choice, given that it's a TV title. Frankie Kazarian faced Doc Gallows. Uh, Carl Anderson distracted Kazarian late, and Gallows hit a sit-down powerbomb for the win. Then the Good Brothers hit the Magic Killer. AEW rarely gives us worthless matches. This was a worthless match and a total waste of time. Kenny Omega and Dom Callis hit the ring to trash talk Kazarian as he kept getting beaten down. 
Callus telegraphed Hangman Adam Page making the save, which he did. He was drunk, spilling his apple juice all around. Uh, Callus asked him if he was stupid or drunk. Page inaudibly said both. He attacked, and as he was about to get beaten down, the Dark Order made the save. So pretty typical stuff there. Nothing bad necessarily, but it didn't necessarily advance the storyline either. Uh, Ricky Starks was standing with Team Taz, saying they will have a big party in New Orleans next week, celebrating his FTW title win. Separately, Brian Cage said he loves celebrations. As I said last week, I liked the turn. I liked Cage being excommunicated from Team Taz, but AEW has basically done nothing to make it feel impactful. They just kind of let it happen. And I guess they're going to eventually fight Starks and Cage, maybe at all out, maybe on the dynamite before. But, you know, I don't really know what end this really reaches. And I don't know how interesting it still is now that it's already happened. Darby Allen fought Wheeler Utah. Sting played into Orange Cassidy's gimmick outside to pop the crowd. Utah nearly pinned Darby twice, but Darby caught him with a flip stunner and hit the coffin drop halfway into the ring. It was pretty far and pretty impressive for the one, two, three. The blade then hit Orange Cassidy with his brass knuckles after the match. The match was nothing special, but the Sting Orange stuff, it was legitimately funny, especially when Sting, after doing all the kicks and all the bullshit, lightly pounded on his chest. It was a nice little finish to the match. This was just a fun thing that popped me. Then later, we got Orange Cassidy against the Blade. This was not that much later in the show. Chris Statlander tried to even the odds with Bunny, but got taken out. Blade hit a spinning tombstone for a near fall, and Orange answered with a beach break for one of his own. Blade missed a brass knuckle shot, and Orange hit the orange punch for the win. Orange then did the punch a second time with the knuckles after the bell. This was a good fun piece of business in what normally was the women's spot on the show. We had a women's championship match, Dr. Britt Baker against Nyla Rose. There seemed to be a big screw up counting a pin attempt on Nyla. The challenger escaped a lockjaw attempt and hit a Death Valley driver plus a flying knee draping over the ropes for a 2.7 count. Baker came back with a swinging neck breaker, but Rose answered with a choke slam. There was a botched crucifix pinning combination and there was a second attempt at it. Both of them were bad. Baker hit two curb stomps for a near fall. Rebel distracted the referee, and Baker tried to pull an Eddie Guerrero with the title. Rose threw the title back in a really fun moment, and then she had a beast bomb for a near fall. Baker finally rolled Nyla over and cinched in the lockjaw for the win. The final two minutes of this were much, much better than the rest of the match, but I was between 2.5 and 2.75 stars, which is basically a CC plus range due to it being really, really slow, and there were a number of botches. It got a good amount of time, which is good, and Baker looked strong, kicking out of some big moves and beating Nyla Rose, a former champion. So ultimately, it was good for Britt. Santana and Ortiz and FTR had a strange staged press conference. It was chopped up either for content or time. It was just really low budget and honestly terrible, not effective at all. Uh, Andrade El Idolo revealed his surprise as a new executive consultant, Chavo Guerrero. So the whole Vicky thing failed miserably, and AEW just brought in another Guerrero to be his manager. Chavo looked great. He put over AEW's talent. Apparently, anyone who debuts in AEW has to immediately say, we have the most talented roster and we're the best, um, which isn't abnormal to do in a promotion, but it's it's always the talent that they talk about. Like, we're stacked. We have so many great wrestlers. It's like, I love AEW. How about just say, I love AEW. I'm so happy that I'm here. I've been watching for a long time. It's great. Anyway, the entire Death Triangle trio entered saying they hide from no one after Andrade called them out last week. Andrade said Pentagon, El Zero M, and Ray Phoenix are good, but they would be great with him as a leader, suggesting they dump Pac. They both basically said they're family. Pac is not their leader. They're all together. They're all equal. And then Phoenix said they're the real face of the Latinos. 
There was nearly an attack, but the referee stepped in. I was really mixed on this segment. The idea was good enough, but the execution was real rough. If you have Chavo there specifically to help Andrade, why are you having Andrade struggle so massively in broken English on the mic? Let Chavo speak for him. There was almost no point to the entire thing. My assumption is AEW is about to introduce a Los Bernabe stable for Andrade, whether it's from AAA or CMLL, or I don't even know who their relationship is with these days. Um, but who knows at this point? Maybe Penta and Phoenix will turn and they'll join up with Andrade and Pac will be on his own. I don't know, but it all seems a little convoluted to me. Christian Cage suggested a six-man tag team match for next week between him and Jurassic Express against Angelico and Private Party. Why Matt Hardy is not involved instead of Angelico, I have no idea. And then lastly, QT Marshall said he'll apologize to Tony Schiavone for dumping a protein shake over his head next week on Dynamite. Why? Why are we still doing this? This is not appointment television. Please stop with the factory. Please stop with QT Marshall on your Dynamite product. There are so many other better people. I don't care that it's 30 seconds backstage. There are so many other people who would better use that time. Zero point zero. And that's it for NXT and AEW this week. This is one of our shorter Thursday shows, and I think it just goes to show not a lot happened on NXT and AEW. AEW did have that big Texas deathmatch that was extremely solid, and the labors of Jericho was good. But when you go over to NXT, they outside of Kyle O'Reilly and Austin Theory, which was not previously booked and announced for the show, there wasn't really a big match. And the Samoa Joe stuff with Karrion Cross wasn't really a big moment. So I thought both shows were step downs from what we got recently, despite both being entertaining and enjoyable. Neither of them were bad. AEW is on a string of like four really good editions of Dynamite. And clearly with Fight for the Fallen next week, which is a way stronger card than Night 2 of Fighter Fest, there's no intent of that slowing down. NXT, these tape shows going head to head with the Olympics. I have no idea what we're going to get, but we will certainly find out and discuss it on this podcast in this very spot next Thursday. Before then, of course, the Silver King will be back on Tuesday with our WWE edition. Vintage Chris Vanini will join me. We'll break down everything that happens on SmackDown and Raw as we are beginning, really, the journey to SummerSlam. I believe there, after this Friday, will be four more SmackDowns before SummerSlam. Plenty of time to build storylines, but of course, we are going to have John Cena and Roman Reigns, the confrontation on Friday. That's going to be really exciting. We will discuss all of WWE in the Tuesday show. And as I noted, we'll be back on Thursday next week with NXT and AEW. Now, before I let you out of here, a couple things. If you did not hear our interview with Big E on our Tuesday WWE show, please go and listen to that interview. If you did not hear our interview with Kofi Kingston from last week ahead of WWE Money in the Bank, please go back and listen to that interview. Both interviews I'm very proud of. The Kofi one is still green. It didn't really have anything to do with Money in the Bank. So you can definitely go back and listen to it. But it was cool to interview two members of the New Day back to back like that. Kind of get their different thoughts on the New Day, the fractioning with one of them on SmackDown and two of them on Raw. And I am going to effort to go ahead and get Xavier Woods and make it all three in a one month period of time. That would be really cool. So we'll see if that comes to fruition. I do have feelers out to WWE and AEW as well for interviews leading up to their upcoming big pay-per-views. So I hope to have more big names on this podcast 
coming up soon. So in addition to listening to those episodes and knowing what's coming up next, folks, you know what the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about. So please go ahead, head on over to Apple Podcasts, drop us that five-star rating and review. Tell people how much you love this show. And also do not forget to follow us on Twitter at GettingOverCast. So that's it for today and that's it for this week. I will see you on Tuesday. Bid you adieu. But I'm also going to leave you with three final words. Bye for now.